like for you to turn your Bibles to the book of Revelation, the 14th chapter. It is in Revelation 14 that we find the very purpose and existence of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I think it's important to do this even if you're visiting with us, because sometimes, even if you're a visitor and you are not a Seventh-day Adventist, you might think that this movement is strictly another denomination to just hang on the wall of Christendom amongst the several hundred hundred, uh, denominations. But I want to let you know that this movement is not just another movement. This movement is a movement of prophetic design. God has raised up this church to give a last day message. And the last day message that God has given to this church is found in Revelation, the 14th chapter. Now, you will find that in Revelation 14, I'm not going to read verses 6 to 12 just yet, but I'm going to read verses 6 to 11. And I want you to just see very clearly as a simple reminder to us of what the Bible says. The Bible says in Revelation 14, starting at verse 6, and if you're there, just please say amen. Amen. The Bible says, and I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell upon the earth. To every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea, and the fountain of waters. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now I'm going to pause right there. Thus far we have read two out of what ultimately makes up three angels' messages. These two angels' messages was actually given... Not in its fullness, but in a very good degree, a very large degree. These two messages were given before Seventh-day Adventists ever existed. They were given during the time of what was known as an Advent movement that was moving all throughout the world. They were studying the prophecies of Daniel, specifically Daniel the 8th chapter and the 14th verse. They were studying this concept of unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. They believed that Jesus was going to come because they understood cleansing of the sanctuary to mean a cleansing of the earth. But these two messages we just read were actually given before Seventh-day Adventists ever existed. The problem was is that there was an incorrect understanding because they thought that the earth constituted the sanctuary and therefore when it says the sanctuary will be cleansed, they thought Jesus was about to come and clean up the earth, not with water, but with what? Fire. So that was the incorrect understanding. And this is why when the fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel 8.14 took place in October 22, 1844, the 2300-year prophecy had now come to its end, it was believed that Jesus would come, but he didn't come. As a result of him not coming, God's people, the Advent people, went through a tremendous disappointment. But these were Adventists. These were not Seventh-day Adventists. An Adventist is someone who believes in the second coming of Christ. So therefore, the Adventists were thoroughly disappointed. But you'll notice, keep your finger on Revelation 14, and let's just quickly turn to Revelation 10. It was after this disappointment took place. The way Revelation 10 articulates it from verses 8 uh, through 10 is it was a sweet-in-the-mouth experience, but bitter-in-the-belly experience. And it was certainly bitter because if you believe Jesus is coming, would you go back to work? You probably wouldn't. Would you continue farming? You probably wouldn't. Would you go ahead and empty your account and make sure that you put all your money towards the work? You wouldn't have any reason for a bank account because you believe Jesus is coming. So you can imagine how tremendous this disappointment was just on a temporal level. But then on top of that, they were greatly disappointed because do you know what it's like when you love a man named Jesus? 
and you believe prophetically that he's coming to take you home where you get to finally see him face to face. And do you understand what it's like when you're looking forward to that great, grand, glorious event and then finally the day comes where you're expecting him to come and the lover of your soul does not show up? They were going through mental, spiritual, physical, financial, and just about any other dynamic of life. They were going through tremendous anguish. It was a great disappointment. But it was through this disappointment that something was now understood. You see, there was a misunderstanding, but it was as a result of individuals going through this disappointment that they went back to the word of God. And when they went back to the word of God and they began to study to show themselves approved, they realized God didn't make a mistake. They did. And they misunderstood that there is a sanctuary in heaven. And in that sanctuary, there obviously must be a holy place and a most holy place. And it was an understanding that Jesus moved from the holy to the most holy place in 1844 at the conclusion of this prophecy of Daniel 8.14. Then they realized, well, wait a minute. If there's a most holy place, then there must be an ark. Because that in the Bible, that's what was in the most holy place. It was an ark. And inside the ark were the Ten Commandments. And when they started to study these things out, they realized God still expects us to keep the Ten Commandments. And in keeping the Ten Commandments, when they carefully looked at it, they realized the Fourth Commandment is neglected. People were not remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy, meaning the seventh day, Friday sunset to Saturday sunset. They realized that people were keeping Sunday, which was a day that neither God nor the Bible ordained to be kept. And as a result of this, they came to a faithful understanding that produced what is called the third angel's message. And when this came into the picture, this was given to Seventh-day Adventists. And the Bible proclaims in Revelation 10, 11, that this was the commission of the Seventh-day Adventist church. It says in Revelation 10, 11, and he said unto me, thou must prophesy how? Again, thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. In other words, repeat the message of the first and second angel with a correct understanding with the addition of the third angel. So now I want you to go back to Revelation 14 and let's look at the third angel's message because it's obviously very relevant, not to simply the Advent movement, but especially the Seventh-day Adventist church. The Bible says in Revelation, the 14th chapter, and now we're going to consider uh, verses 9 to 11. And in verses 9 to 11, you see something made up here of this third angel's message. It says in Revelation 14, 9, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, it says the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. So here it is from verses 9 to 11, the third angel's message comes into the picture. This is the message that is to be given with great force in the closing scenes of earth's history. In other words, right now. And the Bible makes it very clear that this message is encased from verses 9 to 11. This message is encased in a warning. It's a warning. That's all verses 9 to 11. It's a warning. If any man worships the beast in his image and receives his mark, this is what's going to happen. It's a warning. Now, we don't want to fall for this. And there's a reason why this message must be given with a clarion cry right now in this day and age of earth's history. There's a reason for it. To understand it, you have to look at Revelation 13. In Revelation, the 13th chapter, if you start at verse 1, 
you will notice that the Bible, it kind of makes clear the, the relevance, if you will, of why the third angel's message must be pressed in our nation, in our neighborhoods, in our churches, even in our homes. There's a reason for it. And notice what the Bible says. It says in Revelation, the 13th chapter, and if you're there, just say amen. The Bible says in Revelation 13, starting at verse 1, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rising up out of the sea. And he had seven heads and ten horns and upon his crowns and, and upon his horns ten crowns and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Verse 2. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard and his feet were as the feet of a bear and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him three things. What did he give him? Power. Power. What else? Seat. What else? And great authority. So notice these are the three things that was given to this beast power by the dragon. The dragon is none other than Satan. You can read that in Revelation 12, 7 through 9. The Bible makes it very clear that the dragon is that old serpent, the devil, and Satan. So Satan gave power to this beast. Well, this beast is clearly not the lion, which was Babylon in Daniel. It's clearly not the bear, which was Medo-Persia. And it's clearly not the leopard, which was Greece. So therefore, it cannot help but to be the fourth beast, which was none other than Rome. So the beast is being described as Rome and the power of Rome. Today, we would call it the Roman Catholic Church, the papacy. This movement is prophetically being spoken of here. There is no other movement that it could fit with. And this movement is being empowered by the enemy, the devil himself, and he is going about with great power, doing a tremendous deceptive work. But it says in verse 3 something very important. In verse 3, it says, and I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death. But then it says his deadly wound would be what? Healed. And then it says, and how much of the world? It says all the world will wonder after the beast. So the Bible is speaking about a major prophetic story that we don't have time to go through point by point and detail by detail. But if you really want to understand it, really, if you really want to understand it because you love Jesus and you want to be a people prepared to meet your God, then you can come see me or see any of the elders after the meeting and we will be happy to furnish you with all the things that will make these teachings plain. In fact, in just a few months... In October, I'm going to have the privilege to come back, and this time it won't be either for a weekend or a week, but it's going to be for a few weeks, and I'm going to be privileged to be here to make all these fundamental teachings of the Bible, including the subject of the mark of the beast, we're going to make it plain. And this is something that's designed not just for the members within, but it's designed for the beautiful people outside of this church that they may hear the third angel's message. So this is going to be a blessing, and that's coming in October. Well, here it is that the Bible is letting us know that this beast is going to suffer a wound, which it did for a long period of time. It's called 1260 years. And this took place. You would probably know it if you studied your history books as a time period in history called the Dark Ages. And when that Dark Ages took place, 538 A.D. to 1798, this is what makes up this time period where at the end of it, 1798, the papacy was going to suffer a deadly wound. In other words, it was no longer going to be able to exercise its power. But it says something that is startling, that meets our day. It says that the wound will be healed. And when the wound is healed, it said how much of the world? It says all of the world will wonder after the beast. Well, let me make it a little bit more clear what it means with this ideology of wondering. If you were to look at verse 4 now of Revelation 13, it goes a little bit deeper. It says all the world will wonder after the beast. That's how verse 3 finished. So notice how verse 4 starts. In verse 4 it says, and they. Now who's the they? 
It's that same group that was called the world that was wandering. So notice what happens. If an individual wonders after the beast, notice what the Bible says they will do. It says, and they worship the dragon, which gave power unto the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, who is like unto the beast, and who is able to make war with him? So the individuals who wonder after the beast are going to be the same individuals who are going to worship the beast. Now this gets even deeper. Because if an individual wonders and worships, let's notice what else will take place as we go just a few verses down now. And now we're going to look at Revelation 13 again. And we're going to look at verses uh, 15 and let's take it down to 17. The Bible says in Revelation 14, sorry, 13. And now we're going to go ahead and consider verses. Uh, well, in fact, we'll go ahead and go as far back as verse 12. After this second horned beast comes into the picture, it says in verse 12, and he exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to do what? Worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So notice the people who worship the first beast are also people who wondered after the beast. Is that right? And how much of the world was going to wonder? All. So this becomes very serious because do you make up part of all? sound confused so far it's saying all and it seems like all means all so it could mean that we are inclusive of this now let me tell you something if I am being told that I might wonder after the beast which means I'm going to worship the beast and you're about to see what comes when you worship the beast then you and I would need to take what I'm saying to you very very seriously so let's continue now so here it is that not only do they wonder, but they also worship. Well, let's see what happens as a conclusion of the wondering and worshiping. It goes on to say in verse 13, And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast, which had the wound by a sword and did live, and he gave power to... And he gave power, and he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive something. What do they receive? It says they receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So notice there's a connection. It says when the wound is healed, the world, all of them, are going to wonder. But if we wonder, we saw that we're also going to do what? Worship. And if we wonder and worship, we're going to ultimately receive what? The mark. So this becomes a very serious issue. Those who wonder will worship and those who worship will receive the mark of the beast. That is in direct contrast to the herald of the third angel's message. It's in direct contrast to it. The third angel's message is warning the people not to receive the mark. Here it is that we're seeing that when the beast's wound is healed, that all of a sudden individuals will wonder, then worship, and receive the mark of the beast. And it says how much of the world? All of it. Now, brothers and sisters, if it says all of the world, that was my question to you earlier. I said, well, wait a minute. Do you make up part of all? And I would say, well, if I'm looking at it just from a numerical standpoint, yes. But the Bible had a different mindset, a different ideology under this concept of all who wonder after the beast. And I want you to see what it says. The Bible goes on. We're in Revelation 13 again. And again, remember, it showed us individuals will wonder, they will worship, but ultimately they're going to receive the mark of the beast. And do we want that? 
Heaven forbid. I don't care if you're a visitor. You might have grown up watching monster movies and thinking that a Mark of the Beast is looking at somebody's head with three sixes on it. I don't know what your concept is of what constitutes the Mark of the Beast. But the one thing that even heathens as well as saints know is that the Mark of the Beast is bad. There is nobody that I've ever heard of that says, hey, the Mark of the Beast has got to be good. I want it. Everybody has a concept of the mark of the beast, even though we might be incorrect on what we think it is. So we know for sure we don't want it. And how much the more after this proclamation? We just saw under the third angel's message, whoever has the mark, they suffer the unmixed wrath of God. Who in the world wants that? So we know for sure this is something, Lord, that I don't want to play with. And I don't want to be counted amongst a number that's going to wonder, ultimately worship, and then receive this mark of the beast. So therefore, let's find out who really makes up this world that wonders. It goes on in Revelation 13, and you will find in verse 8 that it spells it out very clear. The Bible says in Revelation 13 and verse 8, And they that dwell on the earth shall worship him. And remember, we saw the connection. Wonder plus worship equals Mark of the beast. So these are individuals that's worshiping him, this deceptive power. And it says, And all that dwell on the earth shall... Oh, I'm so sorry. This is actually, to, and all shall worship him whose names are. So notice this now. Those who worship the beast, it says, and all that dwell on the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of the lamb, book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So it does not mean numerically everybody on the planet. It means everybody on the planet whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. Do you understand? So when an individual says, I don't want the mark of the beast, is that enough? That's not enough. We just, we just did a beautiful study on the principles of righteousness by faith. And you and I can't just refuse the mark of the beast just because we got a whole lot of willpower. This is going to take something far greater than willpower. This is going to take something beyond anything that the human mind or heart can conjure up. This is going to have to be something as a result of Christ in us, the hope of glory. It is something that only God can accomplish. So the Bible spells out very clearly, there will be a group of people whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, slain from the foundation of the world. These individuals will wonder, worship, and receive the mark. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't know about you. I want to know how do I get my name in and how does my name remain? I think that's very important. What do you say? Amen. So let's start with how do you get your name in? Revelation, Romans chapter 10. We're going to Romans the 10th chapter. How do I get my name in? I want to get my name in. So the Bible spells it out in a beautiful statement. You'll remember that when Jesus came on this earth, he made a very clear statement of what he was called to do. In fact, it was stated even while uh, things were still in putting together for Jesus to come into this world. You remember Matthew 1 and verse 21, the Bible says, And they shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So now we're looking at Romans 10. And when we look at Romans the 10th chapter, the Bible says something that I believe is beautiful. The Bible says in Romans the 10th chapter, and if you're there, just say amen. The Bible spells it out very nicely. It says in Romans 10 in verse 9, it says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God had raised him from the dead, what's the definite statement in the end? Thou shalt be saved. Now this is a definite statement from the word of God. If I confess with my mouth, believe in my heart 
Now, there's a lot of what that means to believe in my heart. But if I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart the Lord Jesus Christ, literally, the Bible says you can pass from death to life right now. That's pretty simple, isn't it? It almost sounds too simple. If I am willing to recognize my sinfulness, if I am willing to accept accountability and responsibility for my sinfulness and my wretchedness and understand that no matter how good deeds I may have done at some point or another, they cannot merit me salvation. Salvation comes only through the man Christ Jesus that I must confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that he died that I may live. When I accept this atonement and this is what I believe is my sufficiency for salvation, the Bible says you have received salvation. Can the church say amen to that? Oh, brothers and sisters, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to understand. this. So here it is that what now if a man if a man receives salvation, I have a question. Is his name in the book of life? Does he have life? Did not Jesus say that I am life? So if Jesus is life, then if I confess him and I receive him and he gives me salvation, do I have life? Yes, I do. So now watch this. Let's move to phase two. Because just because a name goes in the book does not mean by default names remain in the book. Now we know this to be so. Go to the book of Exodus, the 32nd chapter. In Exodus, the 32nd chapter, the Bible makes it very clear that just because a name enters the book does not mean by default names remain. I would love to share this with my dear Baptist brothers and sisters. I believe Baptist brothers and sisters are wonderful people and serve the Lord to the best of their knowledge. But there is a teaching in Baptist circles that says once saved, always saved. Now, the Bible clearly contradicts that because if an individual is in the book of life, are they saved? Absolutely. If, if your name is in the book of life, are you saved? Of course you are. But notice what the Bible says. Just because a name is in, the question is, does it by default remain? And let's notice what the Bible says. The Bible says in Exodus, the 32nd chapter, the children of Israel were in apostasy. They were worshiping idols. Moses and Joshua are coming down from the mount, and now they're going to deal with this apostate issue. And when they come down, the Bible says, as we consider verse 31, it says, uh, well, verse 30, it says, and it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up unto the Lord peradventure. I shall make an atonement for your sin. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Watch his intercessory prayer in verse 32. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, what does he say? Ask God to do. He says, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book, which thou hast written. So notice, Moses is saying, Lord, please forgive them. And if you won't, take my name out of the book of life. Moses had a love that was heaven born for the children of Israel. And a love like this and no less will only be a qualifier for any of us to get into the kingdom. So it is that when Moses said this, Lord, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book. Notice how God responds. The Bible says in verse 33, the Lord said unto Moses, whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I do what? Blot out of my book. Now, were their names in the book? Of course, that's the only reason why it can be blotted out of the book. Now, if your name is in the book, what do you have? You have eternal life. But if your name is blotted out of the book, what do you have? You have death. You have eternal separation. You understand that? So just because a name is in the book of life does not mean by default the name remains. 
The Bible teaches that. The Bible's clear on this. So now then, that means it's not enough to just get my name in the book. I don't want my name just to be in it. I want my name to what? Remain. So how does that happen? Revelation chapter 3 now. In Revelation, the third chapter, we find out now how the name remains in the book. And this is very important. So now we're in Revelation, the third chapter. And let's notice what the Bible says as we consider verse 5. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 3, uh, Revelation, yes, chapter 3, we're looking at verse 5. And when you get there, please say amen. The Bible says in Revelation 3, 5, he that what? So notice, he that overcometh. The same shall be clothed in white raiment. And look at that beautiful promise. It says, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. Let the church say amen. Amen. That is a blessing, brothers and sisters. There is a way our names can remain. The Bible says that we must what? Overcome. So it's not enough just to confess sins, confess the Lord Jesus, and believe in our heart and get our names entered in the book. Our names must what? Our names must remain, and the only way our names can remain is if we what? How in the world do you do that? That's serious, brothers and sisters, because now there's only one thing to overcome. You have to overcome the thing that keeps the name out of the book, which is sin. We just saw that in Exodus 32. So we're dealing with a situation of overcoming sin or the ideology of victory over sin. This is the only way names can remain in the book. How in the world does this happen? Well, notice what the Bible says, same book, same chapter, but now let's look at verse 21. In Revelation 3:21, we get a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful clue, yea, answer. And the Bible spells it out in Revelation 3, and now we're going to look at verse 21. Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says in Revelation 3:21, the words of Jesus, "To him that overcometh, I will I grant to sit with me in my throne." Now watch that closing statement. Even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. So notice that Jesus is speaking to individuals who overcome. He presents to them a promise. He says, those that overcome, you are going to sit with me on my father's throne. Okay. But how do they overcome according to the verse? How do they overcome? The Bible verse was clear. Hey, folks, this is an open book test. You shouldn't fail open book tests. Look at the verse again. He says, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. What's those next two words? Even as. You know another way of saying even as? Just as. So it says, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father at his throne. So Jesus says, listen, John 16, 33, be of good cheer I have overcome the world. So therefore, Christ overcame the world. He overcame temptation. He overcame anything that tries to keep a man out of heaven. And as a result of this, if we overcome in the same manner as he overcame, we have an assurance your names and my name will remain. Now, the reason why I like this is because carefully looking at the life of Jesus you will notice something that is very similar to an experience we're getting ready to have. The mark of the beast, this great crisis that's going to come to the world, that's going to try to compel everybody, this issue 
is what is called a final crisis. In other words, you and I have crisis all our lives. We have crisis on, on many issues, financial crisis, domestic crisis. We have relationship crisis. We have lots of crisis in our life, health crisis. We have all these things. But when this mark of the beast issue comes to the people of the world, it is going to be what is known as the final crisis. This is it. This is the last one. And it is right upon us. Now, because of this fact, it becomes imperative for us to say, well, how can I best prepare for the final crisis? And do you know who we can look at to know how to prepare? Jesus. Because here's my question. Did Jesus go through a final crisis? Yes, he did. Where was his final crisis? His final crisis was Golgotha. His final crisis. Satan was on the back of Jesus all the way up till he breathed his last breath. Even when Jesus was on the cross, do you know how the devil was trying to mess him up? Took a brother to get some vinegar on a sponge. We don't understand the power of vinegar, brothers and sisters. Do you know why they gave vinegar to people? Vinegar would benumb the mind and benumb the body. And therefore, when they tried to give him the vinegar in John 19, Jesus, he refused the vinegar. You know why Jesus refused it? Refused? What man wouldn't want to relieve some of his pain? What man wouldn't want to go through that? Why would Jesus refuse the vinegar? Because Jesus was more concerned of his state of mind than his state of body. Jesus understood, if I take anything that will inebriate me, if I take anything in my system that will numb my mind up, that I can't understand what's going on even for a moment, and I lose my connection with heaven, Jesus knew if I sin once, the whole plan of salvation is over. So even at the cross, remember what people were saying to him when he was on the cross? He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Satan was on Christ even at Calvary, at every stage of Jesus' life, brothers and sisters. Literally from the cradle all the way up to the cross, Jesus was being pursued by the devil. And in Christ's final crisis, was he faithful? Oh, yes, he was. So therefore, can we look to Jesus to be a model for us? What was it about Christ that gave him so much power that he was able to even face the final crisis of his life on earth as a champion? What was it? This is what the remainder of our study is going to be about, because I believe in practical preparation for last day events. How about you? I believe in that. So we know that there's a last day event coming, no doubt about it, but I believe in practical preparation. There's lots of talk about victory over sin. There's lots of talk about we got to stop sinning and we got to do this, that, and the other. But brothers and sisters, people need to know how. People need to know how, how, how can I really get to a point in my life knowing how much of a wicked, wretched, miserable, ugly, ungodly sinner I am? How in the world can I get a victory and overcome as Christ overcame? How does it happen? Well, you'll notice. Jesus, brothers and sisters, he is our example. Can the church say amen to that? And we know it to be so because all you got to do is consider 1 John 2 and verse 6. Christ is our example. Notice what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to consider verse 6. The Bible makes it very clear that Jesus was not just simply a savior that came to the world that did things, but he was also a demonstration of how you and I were supposed to do things, how we're supposed to live. So the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, and now we're going to go ahead and consider verse 6. And when you get there, just say amen. Bible says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6, it says, He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. So that means that the life, the life, walking life, the life of Christ was a model of how you and I are to supposed to live. 
So the more that I look at the life of Christ is the more I can understand how I can overcome as he overcame. Now, when you look at the life of Christ, there was something that gave him tremendous power to overcome the devil at every phase of temptation in his life. And I want you to see what it is. We are told in inspiration, the Savior's life on earth was a life of what? So notice, his life on earth was a life of what? Communion. communion with nature and with God. It says, in this communion, he revealed for us the what? Secret of his life of power. This is Ministry of Healing 51. So therefore, the more that I understand the communion life of Jesus, the more that I understand that, is the more I can be put in a position that I can have the experiences he had when he was on this earth. And by the grace of God, you and I can overcome as Christ overcame. Now this becomes very significant to me. The communion life of Jesus. It was his communion with nature and with God. Somehow, this produced what is called the secret of his life of power. You know something that's interesting about a secret? It's something that's usually not easy to find or understand. A secret is something you got to kind of search for, you got to ask about it, and you got to put some effort for it and ultimately to find it. And here it is that this is the secret. In other words, a lot of people look at the life of Jesus and we pick little dynamics here and there that we try to reflect and many a times fail. But here it is that we're finding the secret. The secret of his life of power was found in his communion with nature and with God. This is why we've entitled the message today, Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray because it was in his communion with his father, in his time with the father, in prayer, that he was able to have some very special power endowed upon him that enabled him to overcome all temptation that ever came to his life. And I believe God wants to give unto you this same power. What do you say? Amen. So when we consider this, someone may even ask, you know, Brother Lemon, why, why should we even study about prayer? Why, why study about it? Who in the world needs to be taught it? Well, think about it this way. There was a prophecy in Malachi chapter 4 where the Bible talked about Elijah coming. It talked about Elijah coming. And uh, when it talked about this prophecy of Elijah coming, it, said, it was very interesting. Who knows who made up the Elijah that Malachi was prophesying would come. Who, who knows who, who made up that Elijah? Anybody knows? Okay, now I heard one voice. Nobody else knows? Okay, we were saying, okay, so we're guessing. So I don't want you to guess when you have the privilege of knowing. Great Controversy 598 tells us we have a chart that points out every waymark on the heavenward journey and we ought not guess at anything. So you don't have to guess when we're privileged to know. So when you look at Malachi 4, let's turn there very quickly. Malachi 4, let's do it quick. I thought that we all knew it so I could fly by it, but it seems like we may not, so I don't want to run by it too quick. In Malachi 4, you can look at it right there in verses 5 and 6. Uh, the Bible is very clear. It's a beautiful prophecy. It's the, it's the Elijah message. And I want you to see what it says. In Malachi chapter 4, it says in verses 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you who? Now, keep in mind, Elijah was already gone by this time. Elijah has well ascended into heaven. 
But now, here it is. It's saying, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So notice Elijah was going to come, and he's going to come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he's going to do this incredible work of uniting the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. This can apply to literal family, but it far more applies to spiritual family. Us being united to God and God being united to us. Well, the first application of this prophecy is John the Baptist. We know this to be so in Luke chapter 1. So turn to Luke chapter 1 very quickly. Luke chapter 1, and notice what the Bible says, just so you can see it. Luke chapter 1, and notice what the Bible says. If you look at Luke 1, all we're going to do is look at verses 13 and 17. Luke 1, 13 and 17. And I'm doing all of this to answer the question, why should individuals really study about prayer? Why should prayer be taught in all these type of things? Well, let's talk about it. In Luke 1, verse 13, it says, But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name what? John. Now, this is talking about John the Baptist, the son of Elizabeth and Zacharias. But then when you look at verse 17, notice what it says John's work would be. It says, and he, well, in fact, you can look at verse 16 and 17 for better context. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. So that's why I told you it's, it's more spiritually applied than literal. So it says, and many of the children of Israel shall he, John the Baptist, turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of who? Elias. It says in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So the Bible is very clear that the first application of that prophecy in Malachi is fulfilled through John the Baptist. But... It must apply to someone else because it says that it would go as far out as to the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And if you were to study Joel 2 in the book of Amos chapter 3, you would see that the great and dreadful day of the Lord, you know, this is dealing, of course, with the coming of Christ and the destruction and all the things that's going to happen. Well, here it is that there must be a movement in the last days that will also work in the spirit and power of Elijah. That movement is who? That is us. So, watch this. Would we agree then that John's work was an example of our work? Would you agree? Yes, because John was the first fulfillment of, of the Elijah message. We are the last fulfillment of it. You following? So John becomes a beautiful model for us. Now, to more directly answer the question, why should we teach people how to pray? Why should individuals be taught on the subject of prayer? Why should we do it? Let me show you why. Go now to the book of Luke, the 11th chapter. If you go to Luke, the 11th chapter now, now I think we can appreciate it. Luke, the 11th chapter, notice what the Bible says. Why should we teach or instruct individuals in understanding the beautiful uh, dynamics of prayer? Luke, the 11th chapter, and when you get there, just say amen. Watch carefully the verse. It says, and it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, watch what he says now. He says, Lord, do what? Teach us to pray. But how does the verse finish? As who? John also taught his disciples. Question, is John's work our work? 
Yes. Did John teach the disciples to pray? Should we then teach disciples how to pray? Amen. That's why you do it. It's our prophetic responsibility. Too many times people join the church and we just tell them go pray and we don't even help them understand what prayer is and we get mad when spiritual formation comes in. We get mad when contemplative prayer comes in. We get mad when all these things come in. And it's interesting. We fight more the spiritual formation than we do teaching people how to pray right. Wouldn't it be beautiful if those new converts that were to come into the movement that we would say, son, daughter of God, we're going to take some time to show you and instruct you on what constitutes practical Christianity in light of how to pray. In light of how to study the Bible. In light of this, do you know that people got to wait until a seminar comes in their area where they got to pay a registration fee and all these other things to learn how to pray, to learn how to study, to learn how to do things that the church should have been doing from its inception. Brothers and sisters, that's, a, that's something on us. I am speaking to every leader under the sound of my voice. Don't ever let another new convert come in your church without taking time to instruct them this is biblical prayer. This is biblical meditation. This is Bible endorsed methods of Bible study. Don't overlook these things because that's part of the reason why we have so much confusion in the church right now. People talking about the mark of the beast and don't even know how to study the Bible. Don't even know how to pray. That makes no sense, brothers and sisters. First things first. And the same people warning about Sunday laws and everything else are the same people that are, as we heard this morning, slaves to sin. God says, you're working backwards, children of God. We, God says, there's something special that I want to give. And that's why I'm just going to cover, by the grace of the Lord, six points from the prayer life of Jesus. You know, I like talking about George Mueller, Charles Spurgeon. They were good men. They had their place. I like talking about our pioneers, from Uriah Smith all the way down to Jay and Lothberg. They were good men. They had their place. I even like to talk about Sister White. She was used mightily by God, obviously endorsed with that blessed gift of prophecy and has given tremendous counsel and instruction to the remnant of God. But I believe that all of these examples pale when compared to the prayer life of Jesus. When we look at the prayer life of Christ, we will begin to discover things about his life that might move us as the disciples were moved to say, Lord, teach us how to pray. And therefore, I'm going to share with you six beautiful principles about the prayer life of Christ. And my hope and my prayer is that we will receive it, not simply as a good sermon or a good message or something we heard to say, wow, 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 but more so that we will say, thank you, Lord, for giving me practical instruction. By your grace, grant me your spirit that I can literally have the communion life of Christ from this day forward. So notice, lesson number one. Lesson number one. When we look at lesson number one of the prayer life of Jesus, this communion life of Christ, and don't get me wrong, communion is not summarized just in prayer. So I want to make that clear. Communion is when you dialogue with God and God dialogues with you. So I will show some of those dynamics as well, but I'm going to largely emphasize prayer and especially the prayer life of Christ because a lot of times this is not emphasized. So let's notice. Number one, lesson number one about the prayer life of Jesus. You will notice that Jesus always found a solitary place to pray. Jesus always found a solitary place to pray. It was a deliberate habit of his life that he knew I'm always around the throng. 
I'm always around the multitude, but I gotta get my time where I can break away from everybody and find a solitary place. How do we know this? Well, let's go to the book of Luke chapter 5. The Bible says in Luke the 5th chapter, you will see that this was the example of Christ. Literally, he gave it as an example to us. A solitary place to pray. The Bible says in Luke the 5th chapter, we're going to consider verses 15 and 16. And when you get there, just say amen. In Luke 5, verses 15 and 16, notice what the Bible says. It says, but so much the more, but so much the more went there a fame abroad of him. And great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. And he did what? It says, and he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. Notice that Christ, even though he had a tremendous work to do all the time, Jesus was smart enough to understand, sometimes I got to withdraw myself. And when he withdrew himself, he went to solitary places. In this context, it was the wilderness. He went away into the wilderness and he found time for prayer. Communion with his father. Some of us, the literal secret to the failure of our Christian efforts is we spend so much time serving and so little time in our solitary places and we wonder why we're so weak when temptation comes in our way, when all of a sudden we're going to websites we shouldn't look at. All of a sudden, Facebook, there's something inappropriate on it and we keep looking at it and scroll through it and we're clicking on it. We wonder, why do I keep falling into these traps of sin? It's because you have no power. Got lots of profession, but no power. Where do we get the power from? Jesus says, well, the secret was found in my communion. And one of the first lessons we're learning about the communion of Christ is he knew how to withdraw. He knew how to tell people, I'm busy. He knew how to say, I cannot help you right now. And he knew how to withdraw. And he found a solitary place. And he prayed. I pray, brothers and sisters, and I'm talking to the Bible workers, I'm talking to the ministers, I'm talking to the preachers and teachers, and I'm talking to the homeschooling mothers, I'm talking to all of us busy people in life. You better learn how to withdraw. You got to learn how to withdraw. You got to find a solitary place. You got to commune with God. Get recharged, get gassed up again. Look at Luke chapter 6, just one page over, Luke 6. It was in Luke 6 in verse 12. Man, Jesus understood his need for a solitary place in communion with God to the point that it says in Luke 6 and verse 12. It says, and it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Jesus did not play, brothers and sisters, when it came to prayer. Well, the more that I study the prayer life is the more I'm so rebuked. And I'm dead serious about it. I look at the life of Jesus because my family and I, we had worship this week. I tell you, there was one point in our worship. I don't remember which one of my children do. We assign our children different subjects. And it, it showed, oh, man, it is the deception of deception of God's workers. It showed how sometimes we work so hard. When you meet some of God's workers, some of God's workers are lazy people. They want to see how they can get the most done with the least effort. Well, those people definitely disqualify themselves. They're like them brothers who was all on their hands and knees and just drinking the water with Gideon. They, they're disqualified. But there's some other workers that are also uh, disqualifying themselves, but the, the, it's a lot harder to see this one. There are some workers that will push themselves so hard. They will push themselves so hard. And they will, they will, it's like they will, they will press themselves to constantly get the work finished. That they will compromise their sleep time. They will compromise their communion time with the Lord. 
They will compromise even necessary things like drinking water sometimes or whatever else it may be. And they push themselves in the name of the Lord and in the name of finishing the work. I wish I could remember. Honey, Alexander, do you, do you remember what the page was? What, what, what page was it? All right, Desire of Ages, page 362, paragraph 2 and 3. You look at those comments. It literally shows how many of us, what we're doing indirectly is we are doing what we talked about in Sabbath school. We're trusting ourselves to finish the work. We are demonstrating an actual form of a self-righteousness because we're thinking, if I don't work, the work won't get done. God never said, work until you drop. God said, Pray the Lord of the harvest that he will bring forth more laborers to labor in his harvest. Some of us hard gospel workers have absolutely messed up that counsel. And some of us think that there's virtue in staying up late, night after night, putting together sermons, putting together studies, counseling with people, and doing all these things. And we bust and beat ourselves up so bad that our physiology shows it sometimes. Seriously, some people start looking at it like, man, you always look tired. Your eyes are always puffed up, dark. You look drawn. And yet we're going to tell everybody about health reform. So literally, in other words, we're pushing ourselves so strong. Now, there's nothing wrong with exertion, but it can be taken to an extreme. And that's why we have the example of Jesus. Jesus knew sometimes I got to withdraw. Now, if Christ understood that, what in the world is wrong with us that makes us think that we just got to hustle, hustle, hustle and get it done or else? Some of us are trusting more in our work and our labor and our effort than trusting in Christ. And we wonder why we're still stuck in some of the, the ruts and the muck and mire of the challenges that we're in. Sometimes God is just saying, I'm just waiting for some people who can trust me. and Just do what I say. So therefore, we have to understand, yes, there's a time to pray all night. But don't you dare say that's what Jesus did every night. Jesus created the laws of health and he obeyed them. So there's nothing wrong with taking times here and times there. Well, yeah, you're going to have to stay up a little late to get some work done. There's nothing wrong with that, saints. That's the example of Christ. But dare we make it our mode of life. That is when we have stepped into fanaticism and we didn't even realize it. So therefore, Christ understood solitary place, breaking away from the people. You and I must understand this. We are told in this wonderful point from inspiration reflecting Christ, it says, or rather Mount of Blessings, page 84, it says, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. It says, have a place for secret prayer. For Jesus, it was the mountains. It was the wilderness. But it was solitary. Notice, it says, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. Have a place for secret prayer. Jesus had select places for communion with God, and so should we. We need often to retire to some spot, however humble, where we can be alone with God. You know what, brothers? That might be your closet. If you live in a little apartment and you got a whole bunch of children in that house and you know that sooner or later somebody's going to be crying, mommy, daddy, brother, or sister, then what you may have to do is just go ahead, take your Bible, go in that closet, turn the light on, and close the door and say, well, here's my solitary place. No matter how humble it may be, but have a place where you can go to get your communion with God. And how often did Jesus do this? How often did he do it? He did it daily. He daily communed with his father in a solitary place. So how often should we do it? We should do it the same. So that's lesson number one. Lesson number two. 
Lesson number two. Lesson number one is what? Solitary place. You got to know when to withdraw. Lesson number two. Brothers and sisters, please, 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 please. Set times for prayer. Set times for it. And you know why we need to set times for it? Because when we don't, you know what your life looks like. As I know what mine looks like. When I don't set time to pray, I can go a whole day and not pray. I can, live, I can go a whole day and not commune with God. Because I'm, I'm a go-getter. I'm a brother that's always on the move, always doing something. So it's easy for me to say, well, I'm just getting my communion with God when I'm walking. I'm getting my communion with God when I'm talking. When I'm driving in the car, I'm talking to the Lord. So this is time with God. And it is. But there's a time you have to pause from the busyness of life and have special communion with God without cars running by your side while you're driving on the road, without having people coming by your desk and asking for help, without having children come to you and saying, Mommy, Daddy, I need you. There's a time where you got to know how to set time. Now, where do we get this example from? Well, you look at Mark 1, 35. Notice what the Bible says in Mark 1 and verse 35. Notice what the Bible says. Jesus' prayer life is powerful, brothers and sisters, the more that we study it. In Mark 1 and verse 35, I want you to see what the Bible says, and when you get there, just say amen. In Mark, the first chapter in the 35th verse, here was Jesus' time. And this makes sense. This was, this was Jesus' regular time to meet with his father, even though, of course, he made exceptions to this. But this was fairly regular for the life of Christ. It says in Mark 1 and verse 35, and in when? It says, and in the morning, but not just in the morning. What, what time period in the morning? Rising up a great while before day. It says, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. So you'll notice that Jesus would get up in the morning and he would go ahead and do it a great while before day. You remember the Bible would say, I must work while it is day for the night comes when no man can work. So Jesus signified that his prayer time was before his work time, before his school time, before we start our day and all the busyness of life. We should first get up early in the morning when it's quiet, perhaps when other people are still sleeping. And that is our time that we are to go ahead and get our communion with God. Because I'm telling you, saints, it's difficult to try to have communion with God when you know you got a project that you have to do for your boss or your supervisor or meet with your wife or your husband. And you know, man, I only got 15 minutes. Sometimes you're praying and you're thinking 13 minutes, 10 minutes, 8 and now our minds are so pressed on the time to get ready to meet the next deed of the day that our prayer and our communion with God is weak, it's wishy-washy, it's empty, and quite powerless. So this is why before the rush, the hustle, and the bustle of life, before all the time constraints begin to call you, get up and get your time so that you know I can have free time with the Lord because I'm up a great while before a day. This is before all the drama of life starts. I know I got maybe two, three hours right now between just me and Jesus. Brothers, it's nice when you have no pressure on you and you can just commune with God and have a sweet time communing with your friend that sticks closer than a brother. So therefore, set times for prayer. That's lesson number two. And remember, once you set the time, please guard it jealously. We are told, guard jealously your hours for prayer, Bible study, and self-examination. Set aside a portion of each day for a study of the scriptures and communion with God. Thus, you will obtain what? Isn't that what we want? So if you don't have it, brothers and sisters, and yet you know you're not doing it, it's not a mystery. I counsel with people all the time. 
I just don't know why. I just, have, I, I just have no strength. It seems like I don't have any strength with God. It seems like I'm always falling back into my sins. It seems like, it seems like. And all we have to do is say, talk to me about your communion. Let me know, what, tell me about your life. And you start, and once the person starts, well, I do this and do this. Do you do it regularly? Do you do this? And you, people literally start seeing why they're so weak. Somebody in this room, maybe you're struggling with fornication. Maybe there's a boyfriend, a girlfriend in your life. You know you're not supposed to be having premarital sex. You're a child of God. Yet, you feel like a slave to it. I have no power. Look back and ask yourself, where's my communion with the Lord? And you might find out why we're so powerless. Some of us were slaves to drugs. Whether it be in the form of a cigarette, alcohol, or the hard stuff, weed and otherwise. But either case, God says, I can give you the victory, but it starts with communion. Remember, it was the secret of the life of power with Jesus. And you can name the vice, brothers and sisters. I am finding, and I'm serious about this, I am finding some individuals. Did you know there was an article on MSN? And it actually showed that certain individuals actually are going through states of depression as a result of looking at Facebook. Now watch this. Here's where, here's where it got interesting. They weren't going into states of depression simply because uh, they saw bad reports. Okay? That wasn't it. You know what they actually said was the reason why some people were doing it? They said because some individuals are, they, they go on Facebook to say, I'm just going to go on to check my messages. Right? But then once you check your message, you know what happens, don't you? All of a sudden, something pops up. And you say, hmm, interesting. And you start looking. It may not be even something vile. I'm not talking about vile stuff. But it may not be important either. It might be worthless. Hey, look at what I did. I fed my child chicken for the first time. Who cares? You know what I'm saying? It, it might be something like that. But it's just stuff that you see and you're like, <laughs> or a, a controversial subject. Somebody who loves controversy because there's plenty of people who love that. And they go ahead and put some controversial thing up. And because you love the Bible, you're saying, all right, let me go ahead and read all the posts. Let me read all 94 posts. So then you look at all the 94 comments, and here's what happened. This is literally what they said in the study. They said what they found is that individuals will visit Facebook, meaning to only be on it just for a few minutes. And then next thing you know, they're on, they're on it for several minutes or perhaps an hour. And then when they're done, the depression hits them because they realize, I just wasted an hour. And I got nothing done. And I've done nothing productive. And brothers and sisters... I have fallen for this trap. I want you to hear what I'm saying. I am starting to realize this thing. Some of y'all, I know, I know I got a lot of you as my friends, but I'm about to unfriend everybody. And I'm serious because I'm just like, I, I can't let anything distract me. And I'm serious because I know the work the Lord has laid on my head. And the work that he's laid on me is tremendous. And I'm realizing some of these things, brothers, they just grab your attention. And before you know it, you're lost in time. And you look back and you say, my word, an hour has gone by. 30 minutes has gone by, and now you are terribly unproductive and backed up with work, the real stuff that you had to do with life. So in all cases, brothers and sisters, set times for prayer and block it. Don't let anything get in the way. Don't say, well, let me just go ahead and look at this, because I'm telling you, Satan has several traps for us. When you set your time, guard it jealously. Don't let anything get in the way, because I can guarantee you, one of the things that Jesus made sure is no one got in between his communion with his father. Talking about the secret of the life of power for Jesus. All right? Lesson number three. Lesson number three. And I like this lesson right here. You ready for this lesson? Here we go. Lesson number three. 
pray aloud. Pray aloud. That does not mean pray loud. It means pray aloud. When I'm talking to you, I'm talking to you aloud. When I'm talking to you, I'm talking to you still aloud. When I'm talking to you, I'm still talking to you aloud. Aloud is audible. It doesn't mean loud. It just means audible. Okay? It can be heard. Pray aloud. Well, how do we know this? Well, we just looked at Luke, the 11th chapter, in the first verse. Did you notice what happened? In Luke 11, do you remember? Jesus was praying, but the disciples came and heard him. And when they heard him pray, that's what prompted them to say, Lord, teach us to pray. Jesus had a tendency to pray aloud. Pray aloud. Now, this becomes very important because you will notice that there's a Bible instruction for prayer. Did you know that? There's a Bible instruction for prayer. In Psalms, the 55th division in verse 17, what does the Bible say? The Bible says, evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry how? Aloud. And he shall hear my voice. Pray and cry aloud. Why does God want us to pray aloud? What is it that the Lord is trying to teach us? Well, there's one thing for sure. There's one thing for sure. One of the things that every single one of us in this room have a tendency to do is we have a tendency to allow our minds to wonder. Have you ever prayed? Have you ever, did your, have you ever done your thought prayer? You know, when you do this? And you just quiet. You're talking to God all through here, right? Have you ever had that thought prayer? And all of a sudden, one minute, dear Lord, and next thing you know, I got to go get groceries. I got to pick my wife up. Man, I forgot to do that job yesterday. All these thoughts start coming in our head while we're praying. And before you know, you're not even talking to God anymore. Now you're planning. You're planning stuff. You were talking to God, but now all of a sudden, yeah, I got to do this tomorrow. I got to do this. Brother, it gets the best of us. You understand? That's what happens when we're having these thinking things with God. But when you pray aloud, do you know how hard it is to lose your focus when you pray aloud? Try it. You start praying aloud. You start, remember, not pray loud. Don't yell at God. But we can pray aloud. And you will find that one of the practical benefits that comes to us is when you pray aloud, you're more focused on what you're talking about. And then you will see that you will get greater benefits. We are told through inspiration, if we would develop a character which God can accept, we must form correct habits in our religious life. Daily prayer is as essential to growth in grace and even to spiritual life itself as is temporal food to physical well-being. We should accustom ourselves to lift the thoughts often to God in prayer. If the mind wonders, we must bring it back. So when you find your mind wondering, just bring it back. Gain your focus again. It says by persevering effort, habit will finally make it easy. So God is letting us know you don't have to be a slave to thoughts and mind wandering all the time in prayer, whether you're silent or praying aloud. This is from Reflecting Christ, page 100. God wants us to have victory, saints. He wants you to win. He wants you to overcome. But we can only overcome as Christ overcame. And the secret of the life of power of Christ, he had a solitary place. He had a time for prayer. He would pray Allowed. These are the habits of Jesus in his communion. This must be the habit of those who have Christ in them, the hope of glory. Lesson number four. 
Lesson number four. Lesson number four is a very important point because while we set the time for prayer and commune with God, we have to understand that God does something. Notice, the Bible makes it very clear in Isaiah 50 in verse 4. It says in Isaiah 50 in verse 4, The Lord God hath given the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning, he wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. So notice that God awakens Isaiah's ear to hear him so that he may speak. So remember, communion is talking to God, but it's allowing God to do what? Talk to us. He awakens our ear that we can hear him. So then the next question is, well, how does God speak to us? The answer, very simple. Ministry of Healing 122, the scriptures are to be received as God's word to us, not written merely, but spoken. Whenever you're reading the word of God, you will be amazed. If we understand it right, it is literally God speaking to you. This is what I have found why in volume five of the testimonies to the church, when Ellen White would encourage God's people to pray, she would say, pray on your knees. She would say, pray on your knees. Study the word on your knees. Why? Because when I'm on my knees, I'm in a posture of prayer, worship. And when I'm on in that posture of prayer, as I'm studying the word of God, it is like God is speaking to me. And then when I see certain points that I'm like, man, this is amazing. How can I practice this? Then I pause from that devotional point and I pray and now talk to God. And I'm asking him, Lord, help me understand these. How do we make these practical? And then as I continue reading, he begins to talk to me. We are to receive the word of God, not just as God speaking from written format, but God actually speaking to you. God speaks through his word. And this is why the life of Jesus was a life not simply of prayer, but also of study. So therefore, number four <clears throat> is we must take time to study the word of God and allow the word of God to be God's means of speaking to me. This is what Jesus did often, and that's why he was such an it is written man. Lesson number five. In lesson number five, notice what the Bible says. Lesson number five is a beautiful point here. Because when Jesus goes into his solitary place, he sets a time for prayer. When he goes through all these different steps, it produces something. And this is what it produced in the life of Christ. In John 5 and verse 30, Jesus developed an attitude which was, I can of my own self do nothing. I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father that has sent me. Then in John 6 and verse 38, he says, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Then in Luke 2 and verse 49, I must be about my father's business. John 4 and verse 34, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish the work. Then Luke 22, 42, not my will, but thy will be done. We can see throughout scripture, the life of Christ was a life that was fully submitted in doing the will of his father. As a result of this, when Christ had communion with his father, he had communion with a very important attitude. I want you to notice this attitude because look at this. His life was fully, completely submitted to the will of his father. Because of this fact, he had an attitude in his communion with his father. Notice the attitude, because you have to have it too. The attitude of Jesus was, 
And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone. Why? Because it goes on to say, For I do always those things that please him. John 8, 29. Jesus would never go to his father and wonder if the father has fulfilled the prayer that he asked for. Jesus always had a confidence in his father that what I have asked for him, he will do because I am not asking for my will, but for his will to be done. You understand? Why is this important to us? Because we're told in the book of 1 John 5, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask or pray for anything according to his will, he heareth us. So therefore, this becomes a very important principle for you and I when it comes to our prayer life. We must believe. We must believe or exercise faith in the things that we prayed for. There's nothing that God is more insulted by than when we pray for things and get up saying, I hope he heard me. I hope he heard me. I hope he'll listen to me. I hope he'll do it. You know what? I don't think he's going to do it. Brothers and sisters, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Don't insult God like that. If you're going to pray and ask, then you and I should be able to believe that God will ask because what we're asking is according to his will. So we have to understand the, design, the, the divine science of prayer and faith. And I'm going to put a quote up that has Mark 11:24, so you can write it down for edification, but it's right here. Faith and belief is very, very important. It says prayer and faith are closely allied, and they need to be studied together. In the prayer of faith, there is a divine science. It is a science that everyone who would make his life work a success must understand, Christ says. Christ says, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that you receive them, and ye shall have them. That's Mark 11, 24. Jesus never doubted his father. Never. And therefore, when he came, he commingled prayer and faith. He knew, my father's with me. I know my father has not abandoned me. Why? Because I only do those things that please him. Very, very submitted life. Therefore, he always mingled prayer and faith together. And what was the fruit of it? It obviously reaped the results that he asked. It says he makes it plain that our asking must be according to God's will. We must ask for things that he has promised. And whatever we receive must be used in doing his will. The conditions met, the promise is unequivocal. If you ask God for a Mercedes and then you get your car and then you don't even want to let nobody drive it or drive in it, brothers and sisters, it says we must ask for the things he has promised and whatever we receive must be used in doing his will. If God wants us to bring the poor that are cast out to our house, you don't think he wants to bring the poor that are cast out in your car? And when we get to a point we don't want to invite people in our house, we don't want to invite people in our car, we don't want to invite people in anything because it's too precious and too nice and all these other things. Brothers and sisters, we have to be very careful. God might strip you of that house. God might strip you of that car. When we get these temporal blessings of God, we must make sure, Lord, thank you for giving it to me. Let me use this now for thy will. How can I help others with what I have? How can I bless others with what I have? Don't be careless. Don't be foolish. If somebody demonstrates that they're careless and foolish and dangerous, that may not be the person you want to let go ahead and drive your car. You understand? God gives us a brain to use, the prophet says. So therefore, we're not talking about that. But when people need help, 
You got to be willing to come out your pocket and help. You ask for money, God says, all right, I gave it to you, and I gave it to you so you can help somebody. You get a car, you get a house, you get whatever. God says, I did it for you so you can help somebody. If God gives you health, he gave you health so you can better serve him and do his work. So no matter what it is, remember, you can claim what God has promised, but you can't claim what God has not promised. Sisters, don't go around claiming men. I claim that, brother. He's going to be my husband. You can't do that. God is not into mysticism. You can't put hexes and spells on people and make them marry you. That, that's ridiculous. That is, so you can't claim those things. You can see somebody that you think would make a good man, and you may say, Lord, if it be your will, maybe you would have us to come together in unity. We will watch for your providential leadings. That's all right, because it's now you're leaving it in God's hands. But don't go around claiming brothers, claiming sisters, claiming neighborhoods. I've seen people do that. They go in a neighborhood. I claim this neighborhood. We're going to overcome this neighborhood with Jesus. Listen, God never overrides a man's will. If there's a neighbor in the, if, if there's a person in the neighborhood that says, I don't want Jesus, you can't make him accept Jesus. So sometimes I've seen people, it's all this spiritualistic stuff. We go, we're going to claim this neighborhood. We're going to take it over. It's ours. And God did not promise it. I'm not talking about Joshua and Caleb where God already promised Canaan land. I'm not talking about that. God promised it. Remember, you can claim what God promised. But there's some things we're trying to do God hasn't claimed and we bring our spiritualistic practices thinking that we're going to go ahead and claim it, and God says, I'm not giving you anything. So we have to understand we can only claim what God has promised. We should ask for the things that God has promised, and then the conditions met, the promise is unequivocal. What are some examples? The pardon of sin. For the Holy Spirit. For a Christ-like temper. For wisdom and strength to do his work. For any gift he has promised, we may ask then we are to believe that we receive and return thanks to God that we have received. That is what you can claim. That is where you don't have to doubt as long as you meet the conditions. That's from Education 257 and 258. So, brothers and sisters, prayer and faith is essential. Lesson number six, our last lesson. Our last lesson. We've looked at five precious lessons, all from the life of Jesus. All from the life of Jesus. Beautiful. I love studying his life. And we have seen some beautiful dynamics about his life that was a secret. And I'm not limiting it to these, but these are definitely inclusive. You can't bypass this. If we don't have this experience, there's no way in the world we'll be ready for the mark of the beast and the crisis and all these other. Not going to happen. So therefore, lesson number six, very important lesson. Notice this. In lesson number six, this is as a result. As a result of this communion life of Christ in all the other five examples, Here's the last lesson that we look at here about the life of Jesus. One day, Christ is pleading with God. He is pleading with God and he's actually going through agony. He's going through literal pain as a result of the fact that he knows his father is about to turn his face from him for the first time. For the first time in his life. And he's going to literally feel the wrath of God for the punishment of sinners. Jesus took our punishment. So as a result of this, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's going through a trial that cannot be spelled out in words. The Bible tells us in Luke twenty-two forty-four, and being in agony, that's what he was in. He was in agony and being in agony. What did he do? He prayed more earnestly and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, this is very powerful because when you understand agony, 
uh, according to the dictionary, the word agony or to agonize is to suffer extreme pain or anguish. Jesus was going through both. He was going through anguish. He's going through pain. He's going through all of this, mental, physical, spiritual. But quite honestly, his mental pain really overshadowed his physical pain, even though his body was going through trauma. Because your blood vessels popping and mixing with sweat, that's traumatic. Well, here it is that Christ is going through all this, but because he cultivated lessons one through five, even when he was in a serious crisis hour, he was able to endure and he prayed more earnestly. You know what a lot of people are doing right now? When God doesn't answer a few of our prayers, you know what's happening to especially our young generation? They're giving up on Jesus. They're saying, you know what, that's it. I'm tired of this. I've been going through pain. I'm going through trials. I prayed. God didn't hear me. You know what? I'm out. Forget it. And they walk away from the Lord. That's not the lesson Jesus taught. And I believe any young person or any adult that prays and asks God for blessings and they don't get it, and maybe life gets a little harder, and we walk away from the Lord, I can almost guarantee you that adult was not practicing lessons one through five. And therefore, they could not embrace lesson six. They could not embrace it. And there's a lot of us right now in the church that, you know, we know how to come to church, we know how to put up the front, come up in the suit and a nice dress, and we know how to look the, look the role, but some of us are on the verge of going right back out to the world and giving up on Jesus. We're tired. We're tired of failed prayers. We're tired of, not, of God not coming through. We're tired of going through crisis and drama and trials, and there are lots of people, and I've seen it. I know brothers who are elders leading in the church, and then one day I just get a text or an email, man, I'm leaving the church. I'm out. I'm, I'm turning my back on Jesus. I'm going back into the world. And I'm thinking to myself, weren't you just preaching a month ago about faithfulness to Christ? And what's happening is the fruit of our lives is revealing what was really going on when nobody else could see. The seeds that were deep in our hearts. And brothers, I know how it is. It's trouble sometimes we're living in. The church is in trouble. The church is in trouble. I mean, this phase of Seventh-day Advent, this has got to be the worst phase of what we are going through as a people. We have so many wars so many wars that are going on in the church right now. And sometimes people, they, they question, do I even want to come to church? I understand that battle. And then to go out in the world, there's nothing out there for us. Nothing but sin in a, a thousand different forms. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.